It's the Productized Podcast. I am Brian Castle. This is my podcast that is coming out every Wednesday on a bit of a streak here. We've got this going here. I, th- I think it's kind of working. I've got the team all in place with the with, with the production. I, I think, I, I hope that this can actually, uh, you know, sustain through the rest of the year, maybe, maybe uh, beyond. I think we've got a good thing going here. Same thing over on my YouTube channel. Got a good uh, video editor who's, who's helping me out and churning those, those videos out. And so before we dive into today's conversation, um, as I've been doing here, we're going to roll the audio from one of those Q&As over on YouTube. Enjoy. Do clients' corrections and objections destroy the productized service model? How do we handle those and keep things running predictably? Let's get into it today. Hi there, Brian Castle here. Got another reader question for you today. Uh, I've got my, my quarantine haircut on today, thanks to my, my, my barber shop, which are really my, my two young kids who gave me the haircut the other night. But here we go. Here is the, uh, here's the question. This is from Gregor. He asked, how do you handle clients' objections and corrections? Aren't they destroying this wonderful service as a product model? <laughs> I like the way that he put that. That's a really good question. You know, we all want our service to, to run like a predictable, repeatable machine. And oftentimes, you know, when clients come back with corrections and and they're asking for revisions, and they're asking us to redo things. It's like they're throwing wrenches in this beautiful machine that we've built, right? Well, how, how do we deal with that? I mean, number one, the, the, the thing to keep in mind is that client feedback is a reality. It's always going to be there. You know, productized services, uh, just because they are productized, you know, we are not removing the human element from this. That's always going to be a reality. So then how do you deal with that, right? Like, how can you keep your business running predictably and smoothly and, and at a, in a scalable, systematic, repeatable, process-oriented way when we get this feedback and questions and objections and revisions and, and redos. We get that kind of stuff from clients. Well, number one is everything can and should have a process, including your process for how you handle client feedback. So maybe that means building in an extra few days to your delivery schedule to account for client feedback. Maybe it means defining what the most common types of feedback that you hear are and and then defining standard ways for your team to deal with it. You know, in, in my business audience ops where we do original blog content writing as a, as a productized service, obviously, every client really wants to dial in the voice and dial in the subject matter that we're writing about. And so every article that we write is completely custom, original, but it follows a standard production process. And a very important part of that process is dealing with edit requests that come back from, from the client. And so over, over the years of running this service, we've learned how to deal with the most common and especially the, the trickiest types of, of feedback and edit requests that we get. Like, you know, we'll, we'll reduce the need to have to completely redo something and instead make the work that we've delivered work well for the client. Now, as you process a lot of the, the feedback and revisions over time, what you really want to start working on is how can you reduce the amount of feedback and redoing of work before that feedback and correction requests even happen. And so to do that, you can make the work more predictable. I I talk about this in a lot of my videos. You know, you want to start to focus in on solving a very standard, common problem for a a very standard type of client with a very standard solution. So the more that you can move toward that very predictable problem, solution, client mix, the more predictable the work is going to be. And then with that in mind, you can start to set even clearer expectations for the client. And that starts from 
the information that you put up on your website to the selling points of how you actually handle the pre-sales conversations into how you onboard clients. You know, we, in, in my business, we've added more and more touch points, especially in that first month onboarding experience for clients with the specific goal in mind of, of, of setting and resetting and reinforcing those expectations for them. And on that note, you just want to over-communicate at every step of the way. It, it might even seem like overkill, but it really, really helps. So we do things like sending a weekly email to just give them an update on, hey, here's what we've done last week, here's what's coming up next week, and here are the things that we need from you. Or if it's a creative project like writing an article or designing a, a logo or something, I mean, my company does writing, you know, maybe it's, it's showing them an, an early iteration or showing them the topic idea and, and a rough outline before you even proceed with actually writing the draft or, or creating the design. You know, you can build these steps into your production process, into your creative process where, where you're showing a, an early version, getting feedback, and then proceeding with the next step. All of that can be very standard. It, it can follow a process. But just understand that we're building a process around these human interactions. And so that's how you handle, uh, you know, client feedback and objections in a productized service. The answer is yes, they can be handled and it does not completely kill a beautiful, predictable productized service model. Hope that was helpful. If you have any uh, questions or feedback on this one, of course, leave them in the comments and subscribe. Thanks for watching. Today on the show, I'm talking to Joel Kletke. He's the founder of Case Study Buddy. They've really kind of perfected the, the art of, of designing and, and producing and executing on customer case studies for businesses. And, you know, we, we covered a lot of ground, as always, on, on this one. And, and what I really liked about Joel is, is how systems and, and process focused he is as the founder. And we talked all about like the different roles on his team and how he has not only removed himself, but now he's kind of dedicated to his job being like, how can I make this more efficient, faster? higher quality, better results for, for clients. And, and it's just been interesting to hear how, how he's continuously, as he called it, kind of whack-a-mole on finding those inefficiencies and, and really smoothing them out over time into, into a really efficient operation and a growing business. So, um, so this was a really good interview. You, you're going to hear it in just a second. Here's my chat with Joel Kletke. Enjoy. All right, I'm here with Joel Kletke, founder of Case Study Buddy. Joel, good to connect with you. Yeah, really great to chat. Something to distract us during these pandemonium <laughs> times. Right, right. Uh, yeah, I mean, all, all the guests lately, I mean, you know, we can't ignore the fact that we are here in, in early April 2020. I mean, to be completely honest, by the time this episode publishes, I have no idea what the world is going to look like. No, I and mean, the, the threat of kids bursting into the call has never been higher. <laughs> exactly exactly so it's it's high stakes here yeah yep yep that's right i mean on that note like why don't we start there like what what are things like for you and how has the these last couple of weeks and months kind of uh changed things on your end and, and maybe we can work into that like what is case study buddy yeah yeah so i'll start with what case study buddy is because i think that will kind of be really helpful in understanding like how things are going for us right now so case study buddy all we do is take care of customer success stories for B2B businesses from end to end. So that involves everything from helping our clients know how to get buy-in, how to make the ask, how to put together an actual strategy for these assets, which a lot of them aren't even thinking about, all the way to scheduling the interview, running the interview, sending them you know, the recording and the transcript from that, 
and then turning them into sales and marketing assets. So turning them into the traditional kind of PDFs you might have seen, the on-site pages you might have seen, social sharing images we're now doing as well. So we really just try to turn these into evergreen sales and marketing assets. We take care of the writing, the editing and revisions from both sides, which can be a huge pain in the butt that people don't see coming. And then the actual design. And then we do uh, some video as well. So that is sort of our productized service. That is our end-to-end offering. And that's what it looks like. So in terms of how things are going for us now, I mean, the first thing that fortunately a lot of people look to when, when pandemonium hits is to cut costs. And I mean, it makes sense. You have to trim the fat. And so we've been really fortunate in that even in the midst of that, we've signed new business. We have people who see uh, the value in having customer testimonials and customer success stories and assets that they can use through this time to market. And I think one of the interesting things we're seeing too is this whole situation has created a different type of need for our customer. There are different types of stories that they can be telling now, stories about how they took care of their staff through a crisis, stories of how they've made people really happy through the crisis and how people have stuck with them and how they've been you know, so one of those things that didn't get cut and, and fat that didn't, you know, not fat that didn't get trimmed, but like an essential, seen as an essential service. There's stories about how they're pivoting. So for clients who are going, oh, we really need to press into this side of our business now, but we have no proof surrounding that area. That's where we can come in and, and help them get that. So it's changing the kinds of stories that we're telling a little bit. I'd be lying if I said we, we hadn't seen our leads drop. I think, you know, a lot of agencies are really you know, we do a lot of work with agencies. We do a lot of work with software. And so a lot of agencies are really feeling it. They're really kind of hesitant to, to spend right now. So it's honestly, it's week to week. Some weeks we, we get some yeah. wins and we're really excited. And some weeks not a whole lot comes in. And so we just turn inward and we work on the business and look for areas we can be improving and setting ourselves up to come out the other side of this thing whenever that is, you know, in, in better shape. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you and I have have chatted about this before. We're in sort of similar services with my audience ops business and and case study buddy. You know, you've really nailed the whole positioning and service around doing the case studies. And we've done some of that as well. But it but I definitely resonate with a lot of what you're saying about what's happening right now. I, I see a lot of the same things with our customer base. It's one of the things I want to get into with you here about is is about your pricing and packages. As I understand it, I mean, you can correct me if I'm wrong. It's mostly one-off purchases, but there's a lot of like repeat purchases. It's not like an ongoing subscription. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, and to be honest, we're, we, before this all happened, you know, we're working towards a subscription model, but I think the thing that we learned really early with case studies is market awareness of the potential for these assets and how to get them and how to do this consistently is low. And so there's a lot of well, just real, real quick, like yeah, on yeah. the current on the current climate, it's interesting because it's like I have to assume that that the the nature of, of the one time purchase is actually better in a climate like this because you know what we see we're largely subscriptions and and like subscriptions are one of the first things to go when you're when you're trimming the fat on on your costs. Yeah, and you know the other thing I just wanted to touch on real quick, I really liked how you explain case studies in terms of stories. You know, a lot of people don't immediately make that connection, and, and you're right on because it's. You know, th- people think of case studies like, okay, they're big testimonials. They're, you know, it's social proof and, and okay, like it, it accomplishes that job. But really the stories are, are really what's more important. And, um, and, I, and I love how you're kind of adapting those to, it doesn't have to be exclusively like customer success stories. It could be any stories happening in your business. I really like that. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, I mean, on the whole subscription thing, you know, we, we know that there's an opportunity there, but we also know that to seize that opportunity, and I think this happens a lot in productized services and businesses based on people I've talked to, you have to evolve a little bit. You're either bringing in something that wasn't part of the original plan, which I always weigh with some some measured, you know, like, is this worth it for us to get into? Because for us, like, like I said, there's there's always stories to tell. But I think the tricky thing is, for example, let's say you're a typical agency and you serve, you know, a small agency. Let's say you serve 10 to 15 clients. Well, you've got a pretty finite number of stories you can tell there. And so, you know, in order for you to have new stories to tell you, there needs to be onboarding new clients and having more wins or following up with your existing and that sort of thing. The further we get into enterprise, the more potential there is. You'll go, I mean, if you go Google customer success stories and you look at the results, the companies with tons of these are companies like GE or like these huge companies. Some of these companies have hundreds. So if we're going to go subscription model, we know that the market for that is going to be more upscale or it's going to be people more like coaches who do you know, recurring programs and they have a lot of people enrolled in those. So we're moving, we, we hope to move towards subscription, but to do that, to sum up there, we know we have to get into the strategy side, into the side of actually helping them set up systems for capturing that feedback, recognize a good story as it's happening, and basically become the easy button for customer success stories. It's like, oh, we got to win, boop, tap case study buddy in. But the one-offs, you're, you're right in that it, it's been both a blessing and a curse over the course of this company's existence. So blessing in that like, it allows people to, they can do one with us. And we know that if someone does one with us, they'll typically do at least three and, you know, or more ongoing. We know that once we have someone do a, a case with us, we have very few customers only ever do the one and, and then disappear. And we'll have customers come back years later. We have done some work to try to encourage larger order sizes or to, to encourage working with us ongoing without moving specifically to subscription. So some of those things, we have loyalty pricing. So we call it that. I like that wording much better than a bulk discount because we're not selling peanuts here, you know. And it actually works for us too because the model makes sense. So with loyalty pricing, if someone does five of these with us in a calendar year, so we set a benchmark that's attainable for for most companies, then we have a different pricing tier. And it makes sense for us because as we get to know them, and as our writer gets to know their expectations, and the interviewer on their project gets to know their expectations, they get easier for us to do. So there's less back forth, there's less revision. So our costs come down. We can take that off the, the top line price. And now we've created this incentive to you know get more stories and to hit that five marker. And that's been successful for us. We, we do get a lot of people either just order that straight off the bat or people who start with one and, and we prorate it. So we say, hey, if you do one and you love it and you decide to do four more, we'll take, you know, we'll give you the rate on, on the rest of them. You don't have to order them all now. Very cool. So that's how we've kind of managed that. And then we also have, and pricing has been something we've like honestly struggled with a little bit as we've tried to figure this all out, but we also have bundles. So if you do, the, the nice thing is once we've captured the story, turning it into other formats, longer, shorter, slide deck, whatever, that's easier on our side. It still requires revisions and admin and that kind of thing, but we've got the core story, so we might as well use it. Yeah. And so we do have bundled pricing as well. So if you get, say, we have snapshot narrative, then we'll take some some price off as well. In audience apps, we, we do case studies as well, usually usually packed into their existing blogging plan with us. Mm-hmm. And I haven't done a good enough job of like, you know, explaining this to customers or or in our sales stuff. But like, you know, talk about this subscription model is we're kind of tied to the subscription model and that like we are contracted to deliver a new article every week or every two weeks, depending on their plan. Mm-hmm. But when we do those case study pieces for clients, like it's 
totally dependent on us booking those calls with their customers. Yeah. We have ways to work around that. Like we'll, we'll have other educational content and while we're waiting for bookings and stuff like that. But, but that's been the, always been the challenge with, with that kind of stuff. It's like, Mm it doesn't matter how soon our client wants it published. It all depends on when their customer actually books the call and, and we can proceed. You know, do you deal with a lot of that? Yeah. And that's been the problem that actually, thankfully, we're, we've been passionate about solving is I think a lot of people underestimate the amount of work that goes into doing a case study, a customer success story, not because of the writing, not because of the design, but because of getting that buy-in. How do you make the ask? How do you get them to say yes? How do you get them to actually commit to a time and schedule? And then the revisions, right? So once you've done all that, you need them to sign off. And we've played for four plus years now, we've played whack-a-mole with a whole bunch of different problems that can crop up with that. Like we've seen everything from people who agreed to do a customer success story, you get them on the call and they're unhappy. What? Like I would have never thought that was a thing. It's happened, it's happened a few times, right? So we we plan for that. And we have, you know, we introduce checks and balances to make sure before we even bother scheduling the time, like, does this person have a story worth telling? Uh, we've seen people who have done the interview left the company, what do you do about revisions? That's reality. In software and agencies, there's a lot of turnover and and in their clients too. So we need to be able to account for that. We've created a whole bunch of uh, templates and approaches and kind of a framework for making the ask. And we've looked at, okay, well, what makes someone more likely to say yes? What can we do? Is it longer, more detailed emails that kind of really lay out the process? Is it sending along certain assets? You know, and so we've learned some things there. Like one thing that I'm comfortable sharing that we've seen is samples make a huge difference, especially as you move up scale. So when you can show them the end product and say, hey, this is the target we're shooting for. This is someone like you who did take part and we didn't make them look foolish. We didn't expose anything. Uh, you know, samples make a huge difference. So that is our, our success really depends on two things. Our clients being successful in making the ask and getting buy-in. So that's become our problem to help solve. And then their success with the end asset, which is also becoming our, our problem to help solve. How you know, do they see ROI? Because you can give them a gorgeous, great end asset. But what most companies wind up doing is they shove that on a resources section of their site or they give it to the sales team and that's it. When in reality, like these are evergreen assets you can use across the entire funnel. And so a lot of our job now is educating and helping and trying to do that strategy component. Yeah. So, I mean, my my questions and plan for this interview, they always tend to go out the window because we we start to touch on the things that I plan to get to later. But on this point of, I mean, getting their customers buy-in and getting them booked and everything, I was just talking in, in a previous episode to Sam Shepler, mm-hmm. who's in the uh, also in the productized community and doing the basically video testimonials. Yeah. And one of the things we were talking about was having, like the customer needs to basically be ready when they buy, I'm, I'm curious, like, how do you deal with this? Like, do they have to have customers already sort of bought in or reached out to when they come to case study buddy, or do they typically like buy? And then you go through that process of sending the invites and things like that. So I would say nine times out of 10 people who come to us have something in the hopper. Maybe they have one, maybe they have two. They, they know they've got at least one story. So we know, okay, from a starting point, there's usually some low hanging fruit, but I think that's where you know, that's where we're kind of evolving into like, okay, our process for putting these things together is very much productized. We know the system, the flow, we know who's doing what, that's all laid out, nothing unexpected there. But increasingly, I think to succeed with this particular asset, because it is so high touch, 
And because it does depend so much on like, you know, like for Sam, if they do a video testimonial, I mean, that's a high ticket item, right? Like higher cost because, and they do amazing work. Like Testimonial Hero is a fantastic company and, and, you know, fantastic end product. So they earn and they they have these these bigger high ticket items. For us, we're like, it's sometimes I would imagine like a 10th of what a, a video might cost, right? So we need to get that scale. We we need to find some way to get every possible, not in a greedy way, but every possible penny out of every possible client. So usually we start from the point of, okay, you've got someone who is willing to take part. When we do our thing, our clients tend to get, and this sounds like I'm just tooting our horn, but we've seen it over and over. They get so excited at the process and the output that then they start looking for stories. And this is kind of what I was saying is part of our job has become not just creating these, not just the production piece of it, which you can productize, but the strategy side of it in helping our clients understand, okay, what systems do we have in place to surface feedback? How do we know when great stories? And the bigger the company, the harder this gets because you have a whole sales team and maybe they don't talk to marketing or they don't talk to the content people. So a lot of what we wind up doing is, for example, one of the tactics that we help customers deploy is let's say that they're excited about it. They've done one. They're not sure they have other stories, but they know that they want some more social proof. We'll kind of do this you know, tiered thing. So we might start with, okay, let's do a really simple NPS score survey. Let's find who's happy. Let's just get that as a barometer. So we'll do We'll help them deploy a pretty simple NPS you know, score survey. And then out of the people who respond to that, we'll look at the responses and say, okay, what's, you know, normally we'll couple the, couple the NPS with like a single question, like some sort of interesting question, like, you know, what was going on in your business that, you know, when you came looking for us, or we might ask something results oriented, like what's the biggest impact you've seen over the last six months or whatever. We'll take that and then we'll escalate the commitment a little bit. So of those people who respond to the NPS, we'll contact them directly and say, hey, we really appreciated your feedback. Would you be willing to just tell us a little bit more about your story? And so we might send out like a survey with a couple more questions to kind of see what kind of story is here before we get them on a call. Because you're asking a lot of a person to do you a favor to get on a call. That's really interesting that, that you're using the MPS surveys and things like that, because it's like you're, I can imagine that's the biggest burden on your client is to literally think through like, okay, which of my customers do I actually know by name who have also been super successful that I feel comfortable to reach out to. Like, that's a huge, it seems simple in theory, but it's, it's not as simple when, when you start to think about it for your own business, right? Yeah. So when you can have like an outside vendor, you know, come in and, and kind of do this analysis and just start to take that, take that work and make some suggestions. Obviously, your, your client would, would probably have a final sign off on who gets invited and things, but that's our problem to solve, right? Like we know for, for us to be successful, we we have to help them with that. Yeah, yeah. I, I also like the way that you put it a little while ago. It's like whack-a-mole. It totally is. I mean, it's year after year when you're when you're growing one of these productized services, you have some baseline concepts for how the production process can go, but you're going to find out friction after friction that you just need to smooth out and, and just mm-hmm. problem solve. That that's what it what it's all about. Yeah. Awesome. Let's step back a little bit and get to the stuff that I kind of wanted to touch on, like at the top of the interview, which is like, <laughs> can you give us like any any sense of like size, whether it's I don't know, ballpark revenue or or team size, or I, I think you mentioned you're you're in about four years on on this business. Like, give us a little bit of context. So my own consulting work has taken precedence over these past years. So I, I launched this thing as just like a little side project. I was like, you know what, this sounds. I, I saw the opportunity and I thought 
no one else is really doing this. Like when I looked around the, the competitive landscape, there's like Casey Hibbert who specializes in in written case studies. There's agencies who had them as like just another service. But I, I looked around and I saw like there's barely anyone who's like planted the flag and said like, this is who we are. This is what we do. This is the problem we solve. So I launched it as this side project. And for the first, you know, I say like four years, I should actually look. It's like time flies. For the first years, we were kind of like to use the pretentious term, like almost like stealth mode. So it was like, I did everything. I would write the study, do the interview, because I was playing that whack-a-mole for myself. I needed to understand the process hands-on before I was comfortable selling this thing. So in like the first entire like calendar year, it was just me kind of quietly doing this off the side of my desk. You know, we probably turned over like $30,000 or something total in the entire time, if that, because I was doing them cheap. And my only goal was not to make money with this thing. It was to build the process, to understand what would make me money later on. And your background, you're, you're a copywriter? Yeah. When I launched, uh, so when I left out on my own in 2013, I was doing more content like blogs and eBooks and that kind of thing. And then within two years, I had transitioned fully into conversion copywriting. So I do websites, landing pages, you know, that mix of data, creativity, and, you know, direct response copywriting. So that's what I do in, in my own work. So I had that background to actually do the writing and I liked interviewing people. I had done, you know, a lot of public speaking or just different things. I w- in, in university, I had written for the school paper and done interviews there. So I kind of had the toolkit going in to, to figure this out. So for the first year, you know, it was just quiet. And I wasn't until like, I think near the end of the first year, a year and a half that I brought on teammates. The first two people that I kind of brought in was my friend, Steven who had worked with me on all the other stuff I've ever done writing. So I thought, well, I'll get him to help with these. My friend, Jen, who we'd worked together agency side, and she was really good on kind of the project management biz dev side. And so in the early days, definitely was more interested in having her as a partner for like the project management side, because I don't love being in the weeds of like the day to day once I've built the process. And and then it kind of grew from there. The, The fourth person we brought on was our first interviewer other than Jen and I. So we brought on someone who originally was meant to be a writer, uh, realized she was much stronger on the interview front than the writing front. And and so she's been with us still, uh, since from the very first year, which is pretty cool. So since then we kind of started from, let's say, I don't know, under 30,000 in in the first year, because we were quietly doing our thing. Uh, last year, I think this will be in like, I don't know if this is Canadian US, but we we did about like 300,000 plus in terms of revenue. And so we're not gigantic. We're not like a million dollar company yet. We've also, you know, it it has been, the reason I mentioned at the beginning, it has been this side project for years. And it wasn't until pretty much last year that we thought, let's put some serious, you know, like this thing has grown under its own steam into multiple six figures. Like, why don't we start putting some attention into it and see what we've got? What does your team look like today? So this is one thing that's benefited us massively in the current climate. Everybody's a contractor. Uh, we have some contractors that are on long-term retainers with us. So we we have a tight-knit team and we're not constantly searching for new people. But like our core project manager is a month-to-month you know, contractor. Our main editor, contractor. Our interviewers, all contractors. So at this point in time, and not everyone's busy 100% of the time. But we right now we have three interviewers, and that gives us some flexibility in terms of time and time zones and that sort of thing. Uh, and then we have a little writing stable of seven, I think, at this point in time. So again, in any given month, they'll all be kind of working on however much they have. Uh, something that served us really well is with each client, they have continuity. So 
as much as we can, as much as is feasible, the same interviewer and the same writer are going to work on all of the case studies they do with us because we can build up that rapport. We can understand their expectations and really get to know them. Uh, we have at this point one core project manager empowered by a lot of kind of different automation and different things happening um, in terms of like our CRM. So she's able to have superhuman powers and keep stuff on the rails. And then there's myself and then my partner, Jen, who are now kind of focusing on steering the ship and, and increasingly doing biz dev. But to date, and this is kind of like the interesting point, maybe for some people too, and this is not a brag, this is actually I see as like a huge failing of ours. To date, we haven't ever run ad campaigns. We've never, we don't really have, or haven't had, I should say, a cohesive content marketing strategy or SEO strategy, really. We like this business has pretty much been studies? grown. Yeah, we do. We do have case studies, thank <laughs> goodness. But the business has, you know, pretty much today grown under the steam of two things my speaking and like my connections on the conversion side, because I do a fair number of like podcasts and speaking events and that kind of thing, and word of mouth. And a lot of the time, what happens is we'll do an interview. The person who's in the interview enjoys being interviewed so much that then they start doing studies with us as well. Very nice. So we have so many more levers we we still can pull. And that's why I'm really excited about the future, even in the midst of everything happening now. Yeah. Yeah. My team too is, is uh, for the most part, contractors. And I think that's worked out pretty well for everyone involved because there, I, what I found is there are a lot of really, really talented and and really great communicators, great professionals who actually want to be like part-time. They're essentially freelancers, but they want something even a little bit more steady than a typical freelancer sees. A lot of these people, I'm sure you've seen similar things where a lot of them are like stay-at-home parents. They don't want to be hustling to get every new customer every, every new gig and and the gigs only last a month like I, like I really like this model of of finding really talented really reliable freelancers who really value the long-term steady engagement even if it's just 10 to 15 maybe 20 hours of their week and then the rest of their time they they're doing other stuff other freelance stuff or stay at home stuff you know working remotely i mean and i love that, that like the team has been essentially on the team for 3 or 4 plus years but mm-hmm. in in that like part time capacity, you know, I think it. Yeah, I think it's a, a model that so many businesses should be more open to. To be honest, yeah, I mean, we we love because it's who I am. It's who my partner is. We love stay at home parents. A huge contingent of our team are people exactly as you're describing. People who are real talented, really good, sick of the grind, or just don't want to have to drum up their own stuff. And we can give them. I think what's cool is we can give them that flexibility. You know, it dear to my heart is we try to pay as fairly as possible. I know there are a lot of like writing shops and content-based shops out there that really try to grind down the pricing. But for us, we know what, you know, a good writer is worth because I come from the writing community and Jen has worked agency side. So she knows the value of these, these assets. So I think it's served us really well. And in a time like this, we can, you know, because oh, re- we only like we have some on retainer, like our, our project manager retainer we're always going to need need her in the mix uh, our main editor retainer because he does he produces a lot of content if he's not editing studies or whatever but because you know the rest for everybody else it's if there's work they do it if there's not they've, they've got other things going on yeah. it, you know, it's allowed us to contract down in this time and not have this crazy run rate or like insane overhead you know like we our bigger concern is stuff like software and that sort of thing in the in the time like now are just making sure those retainers get satisfied yeah very cool 
Just a minute to tell you about Productize. If you're sick of the client services treadmill, well, there's a better way, a productized service. That's why I built Productize. It's a private community and training program for people like you and me. We're operating a client services business and we're scaling it up using the productized service model. Join our private Slack, our private forum, and get matched into your own small mastermind group with other members. Give and get honest, constructive feedback to grow your productized service business this year. Plus, get access to my productized course, which gives you everything that you need to start, grow, and systematically build your productized service business. The best part about becoming a member? No ongoing subscription. Purchase once and you get lifetime access to everything. Go to productizecommunity.com for all the details. And right now you can get 10% off by using this special URL, productizecommunity.com slash podcast. So I guess sticking with the team a little bit, maybe we could start to dig in a little bit to your process and who's doing what and, and what is a typical client engagement look like, you know, kind of start to finish or at least through the, through the first few deliverables. Sure. So I'm curious about the team individually, like what the roles are and and how things get passed from one person to the next. I'm also curious about your personal role. Like what, what are you doing today? What are you not touching anymore? You know, Mm -hmm. curious to hear that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things that I think are kind of special about our team and and it continues to evolve. Um, We keep, as we grow and we have new needs and we need, you know, we introduce new things we have the ability to add new people to the mix. So a typical, I'll lay out the engagement and then I'll break down who's doing what. So in a typical engagement, engagement, a lead comes in, someone needs to get on a sales call with them. We know based on experience, this is not like for a very small contingent, it's a hands-free offer where it's self-serving. They're just like, I want that. But most of the time we need to get on a call with them, explain the formats, explain the process, give them comfort because there's there's few things more precious to a company than its relationships with its customers. We have to be good stewards of that. So getting on a call has service for both. So I think that's a good point to to emphasize because I, you know, I know that there's a lot of people who are interested in productized services and they see a lot of them and they see people publishing their prices, even having the buy now button on the homepage. And I get the question a lot, like, well, like, do people actually just show up to your website and and pay all that money up front without talking to people? And in my experience, like, no, I mean, yeah. <laughs> I, can count, I can count on less than one hand, the number of people who have actually paid using the buy buttons on our homepage without first doing a sales call. And, and it's, it's there for ease after the sales call and they come back. But yeah, I mean, the sales consultation process and the follow-up, that, that's part of the, of the production. Yeah. And I mean, it has to be, right? Like we're, we're interviewing or working for, in some cases, companies on like the Fortune 50. So we, they're not going to just toss that off to some random. We have a lot of trust building we need to do. Yep. So call comes in. Someone needs to, to get on a, a sales call with them and make sure it's a good fit, set expectations. Once that happens, from there, it can kind of diverge. If they've got somebody lined up, then we send them a couple bits of documentation to help us understand the story and understand their company. And then we've recently introduced on top of that, once we've got the briefs back, we'll also just do a kickoff call, talking through, making sure everything's clear. We know their expectations. They know what's coming. Because the sales call is more about explaining like what we do and how we do and why it's valuable. This kickoff call is more about explaining, okay, we've got your info. Let's make sure everything's accounted for. So we get the briefs back. Are you doing like the sales call and are you involved in the kickoff call? I'm involved in neither at this point. All right. Beautiful. Yeah. I'll lay out. 
from start to finish okay. who's, All right. who's doing what. I'll, I'll let you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sales call. Then all the documentation. So the briefs go out, the invoice goes out, the contract goes out. So not necessarily in that order, but once we've got sign off briefs for them and their customer, and then invoice and, and we're off to the races. So then what needs to happen is, okay, we need them to give us a warm introduction to their customer. We help equip them to do that. We give them some resources to make that easier for them. We schedule the call, conduct the interview, send them a, a summary of, of the call after the fact. It goes into production. So someone needs to write the first draft, heads into revisions after that point. First, our customer, then their customer. Once we've got approvals all the way done, if they chose design, goes into design, then it gets pushed live. And then we need to follow up and make sure that they're actually using it and seeing success with it. So that's from like a high level, what the process looks like in terms of who does what and what I'm involved in. I'm not involved in anything you just heard. My only job at this point is growing the company. So that is coordinating. I mean, I, I do a lot of work on the process itself. So I'm continually looking for ways to make it faster, better. I'm still playing whack-a-mole years later. How can we do this better? How can we speed this up? What, what would happen if we shifted this around? So I work a lot on the process. I work a lot on the planning in terms of what we're going to do. And then I work a lot on like actually speaking, going on podcasts, doing talks, publishing about it. So right now I kind of do that piece of the, the marketing a little bit. But back to the process. So the sales call. My partner, Jen, so that has been, she's an ace for BizDev. So that has been her role is to do that sales call. And you guys are business partners in this? We are, yes. Yeah. Got it. So we, yeah, I I brought her in. Yeah. Yeah. So I I realized again, because this was early on, it was a side project and I wasn't about to give up my consulting work. I realized, look, if this thing's going to have legs, if this thing's going to fly, I need someone who can do the things that either I'm not great at or the stuff that I just don't have time for. And Jen and I had worked together so well, agency side. Uh, I have a lot of respect for her and and we're the kind of people that can disagree with each other and still be okay with it, which I think is rare. So she's a partner. Yeah, she, she, she owns uh, the company as well. So Jen will do the sales calls. From there, Morgan takes the reins. So Morgan has become, in a business like ours, the tricky thing is by virtue of the process, this person's gonna have a lot of potential touch points. Someone's writing it. Someone's interviewing. Someone's da 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 da. Morgan is consistency. Morgan is the person they always check in with. She's the one driving the project forward. So in terms of documentation, updates, everything flows through Morgan. Morgan's the person. If they've got revisions, they go to Morgan. Right. All that. She she's kind of the controller, the project manager. So Morgan will take care of that. She'll help kind of get the ball moving on things like getting buy-in. Then the interviewer. So the interviewer will step in to help schedule the call and run the call. So we separate, one thing we do that's unique is we separate our interviewers, they only interview, our writers only write. We don't have a single person that does both. It's not that they can't. It's because having that flexibility gives us more bandwidth to grow. Someone who has to interview then write is now stuck on the same project for a longer timeline versus just being able to crush their piece and move on to the next one. Yeah, that's interesting because we have writers be the ones who who talk to clients and interview them. Whether it's for case studies, but sometimes it's just research for for other articles. Yeah. But that our account managers also go on the call with them. Yeah. And what what has happened in some cases is our account managers who who are also who also have like writing backgrounds, they end up kind of just covering the interview for the writer sometimes mm. to kind of like free up the writer a little bit or the writer couldn't work with that schedule. So the yeah. manager just 
does it and and that separation has happened naturally and so you're giving me some ideas to, to think through here yeah i mean we the, the the hard truth for us has been everything everything hinges on the interview great interview great end product terrible interview we're in trouble so we need those interviews to go well they have to go well and that's why it's a specialty for us it's a specialized skill we don't want interviewers to have to think about anything else yeah who are you hiring for for the interviewer? Like, are are you looking for writers who can interview? Are are there people who build themselves as like I'm a I'm a freelance interviewer? Like, how do you find those people? It's a real mix. It's a real mix. Like I mentioned, our very first interviewer was a writer whose interview skills we were more sold on than their writing skills. She was mm-hmm. a former journalist, and we love journalists because journalists know how to dig for a story and tell a great story. So she, you know, she had a journalism background, and and she. Interestingly, all of our interviewers are women so far. They just seem to, I should stereotype, but the women that we have are just really good at getting into the weeds, asking tough questions without seeming like they're badgering. Like we've just got a fantastic team on that front. So, I mean, our first interviewer, yeah, she she had a journalist background. Uh, our second is someone who just honestly loves loves interviewing. Like that's kind of, I, I'm not even sure on her entire background, but was always just kind of in a little bit of like a, almost a customer success type role, doing a lot of like, you know, kind of journalistic, I guess, you know, journalism is kind of the common thread, but producing content as well, but just more in love with the, the art of talking to people. And then our third one comes from a customer research background. So actually, again, just loves talking to people and learning about people. So when we're interviewing or when we're looking, you know, for, for team members, we ask them, like, what do you love? Do you love the writing side? Do you love interviewing or both? And then we try to tease out which one they're stronger at and just let them be dedicated to that. We love interviewers who know the writing side because that's one challenge you have when you separate the two is every cog, and I'm not talking about my people as being cogs, but just as a metaphor, every cog needs to know how it drives the next one. So if you get someone who can run a great interview but not get the intel you need, then it's not a great interview. Like just being personable or being able to rattle off a list of questions is not good enough for for the interviews we want to be running. So what about like the little things? I mean, you talked a little bit about design, who's putting that together, and then even just the, you know, formatting and and getting it all finalized and ready for for delivery. Yeah, we have templates for everything, everything. So when the writer sits down to write, depending on the format they're writing to, there's a template for that. When the designer sits down to design, they know there's a template for that. The advantage is speed and efficiency. The disadvantage is, you know, and I'll be the first to say it, our product doesn't look necessarily as custom as like, let's say you took it to like some ace design shop. They might do something a little different. We're playing around with that. We've made some changes recently that will allow us to be a little bit more, you know, experiment with it a bit more. We're not getting complaints or anything, but we just want to be doing our best work. Mm -hmm. But in the chain, so the interviewer runs the interview, writes up the summary email, passes it off to the writer. The writer's got their templates. They get all everything they need to do their job. That's the other thing that I've wanted to be part of this company from day one is every single person gets everything they need to do the piece they're responsible for right away. So interviewers, by the time they're sitting down to interview, they've got the briefs, they've got the backstory, they've got the details from now our kickoff calls. They know what they're walking into. The writers, they've got the briefs, the transcript, the recording. They know what they're walking into. So the writer's right. And then for design, we we have a design resource that can just turn around whatever we need. So 
uh, in terms of like if it's PDFs, uh, that's been our traditional deliverable. We're shifting more now to doing, hopefully we'll see what the market is. They're interested, but HTML pages. So now we're actually designing more of like the actual uh, static page layout. And then in the future. Actually, I was going to ask. Yeah, yeah. So, so yeah, like I know you prepare the the PDFs, which look great. But the I was wondering, like, do you do you plug into their websites at all? Whether it's like, oh, we need this posted into WordPress, or so so you're doing like custom HTML pages like, as the the deliverable, and then then you hand that off. This is a piece we're figuring out. Uh, in the past, it was originally we charged for design files because the whole thing is like, well, if we don't, what if they just take them and they never work with it? You know. We don't now. Now everyone gets their design files. It's like, let's not, we, we got enough requests. So like, let's not make this a barrier. And those keep, people kept asking for us to do the design anyways. So we're like, okay, enough, enough with this. This is a barrier we put up that's actually just making things worse. So in the past, we just give them the design files and let them kind of worry about uploading. And then again, the realization we have over and over in the business is, okay, but if their design sucks or they deploy this in a crappy way, they're not going to get the ROI with the asset. We need them to get ROI with the asset. So in the past, it's just been PDFs. Now we're we're ironing out the surprisingly complicated process of injecting ourselves into the HTML side. Without going too far into this, we've looked at a lot of ways of doing it. Probably the worst is just like, just give us like access and we'll plop it in because there's so many things that break with the bigger the company too. Like we can't count on every client having WordPress. Like we can't be sending a writer into like Joomla to figure that out or like, you know, so so we needed to find a way to productize this and make it something that we could control. But the minute you add HTML to the whole equation it, or, you know, to, to a live page, there's things to think about like security, design, what if it breaks? You know, so we thought about what we could do, uh, you know, the just FTP or they could grant us access. So we spent a lot of time thinking about this problem. I think we finally cracked it. We'll see. But yeah, we're moving into the space now of Number one, we can just design it and send them the design assets and they can go deploy it in whatever environment they have. Or we're actually getting to the point now where we can actually do the entire thing on our side, design it, deploy it, you know, and, and go live with it. And they don't even have to think about it. And so that's that's the next thing we're hoping to roll off the line is this this productized piece of, of the puzzle, because that's one of the things that's kind of broken in this space is. Even the big guys, you go look at like GE or I've mentioned a few times, but again, go Google customer success stories. So many people have PDFs. PDFs are great and awful at the same right. time. PDFs is great to send in an email. PDFs is terrible. If you're on mobile, like good luck, all your mobile traffic. I feel like the whole like the whole point or the whole use case of PDFs in business these days is is basically like people want to pass along finished products, but nobody has access to the company's website. Right. <laughs> so, so like like PDF is like the next best thing to just get something to someone or published yeah. without without having to like go through all the hoops of of actually like editing the website, which is terrible. I mean, it should be easier, but that's yeah. just the way it is, you know. And I mean, it it breaks a lot too in PDF. Like we want to know, for yeah. example, like the best we can do with a PDF if we're using a tool like Docsend, we can look at like download rates or consumption rates. That's not great. Like we want to have that analytics data to know which version performs better and what people actually pay attention to and time on, you know, actual dwell time and that kind of thing. Yeah. So are so actually on that piece, are you do, what are, are you doing any like reporting or or after the fact like analytics anything like that? Not yet. Yeah. We this is a problem, you know, when we and again, for people listening, I got into it thinking, "Oh, great, we'll produce case studies." And then one thing after another, you, you start adding, right? So we part of my job in leading the company now is drawing where's the firm boundary lines? What do we do? What do we not do? 
what do we maybe bring in a partner for, right? Like for us right now, I'm totally fine transparently saying we have no designs on like hiring a, a PPC person to deploy these in campaigns. We know that customers need to be using these in like Facebook ads and that sort of thing. We'll create the assets to enable them to do that. We don't want to own the responsibility of like continually optimizing and managing that spend. It's a different business. It's not what we're in the yeah. business of. There was a short period of time a couple of years ago where I did step into that realm because I knew so many of our clients were running PPC campaigns to the content. And I hired a guy, and and but it just, within a few months, it was clear, like, this is not our wheelhouse and and we're not delivering on that the way that I would want to. So it's, you know, just doing, doing too many things, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, it sounds really pessimistic, but it served me well. I think a really good mantra to have in productized services, because I think people falsely believe a lot of the time, like they are amazing and brilliant. And there are some that are really like lifestyle businesses, low friction, whatever. But I think the mentality you need to carry with you into a productized business is that everything is going to be harder than you think it will. And that's okay. Like everything is tougher than you think it'll be. And that's all right. Because like, well, one of the things I love about it, and you've been explaining this so well, is the, I think the idea behind a productized service, the best ideas for productized service businesses are the ones that are really hard to tackle. They require hiring a lot of specialized skills. They, re, they require a lot of just a lot of legwork. To get, and so it's like going after those like big, hairy problems and putting a process to them. Mm -hmm. That's where you see a ton of value. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, the, this company really knows the whole process of, of putting, knows all the, all, all the pains involved in, in case study production and, and they've figured it all, that all out rather than a company, you know, going and trying to hire all those pieces individually or try to do it in house, you know? Yeah. And that's the thing too, is we've had to learn too over time. Like our best customers tend to be companies who, who get it, who see like, there are so many moving pieces to this. The people who are just like, oh, I just want a story. You know, we're not, I wouldn't say our pricing is like high. We're not the cheapest option. You know, we're certainly not going for like the unlimited content for $50 a month type model. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not crazy expensive. We're not super cheap, but to the wrong prospect, prospect, we cost a fortune. And to the right prospect, we're like the, the greatest bargain on the planet. Yep. I wanted to, you know, before we wrap up here, there are basically two questions related to like the sales and, and marketing side. On the marketing, because you, you mentioned a couple times here that you you do podcasts, you do some speaking. Um, a lot of the a lot of the leads are coming through through that network of people either knowing you or or have heard you speak or, or followed you and things like that. Like, are there any like strategies or or things that you've done to to keep yourself getting out there and, and getting that exposure, like or anything else that you do in terms of like the lead gen stuff? And then the next question we can come back to in, in, in a bit here is just. On the back end, so they've purchased a couple of initial case studies with you. What what's involved in trying to to get them to repeat buy and 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 turn that the one time purchase into more of a recurring thing? Yeah. So on the terms of you know marketing and legion, and I'm the very first one to say this has been a, a comparative weak spot for us because we've been spoiled in that we haven't had to really think about it so much. So we haven't, and that's part of what we're now addressing in this whole pandemic is okay, we need some more systematized ways of, of doing this. We grew so much just under the steam of word of mouth, that it was we could put our focus in other spots, we could work on the process, we could work on getting people in place, we didn't really have to think about the lead gen. And that was great when when things were great. And now they're not. 
So I think things that have worked are things like speaking engagements for me. Um, I love teaching. I love sharing a process. And I've always found the more that you give away, the more people just want to come to you and, and get more. So speaking has really expanded that creating, you know, focusing on the customer. Well, how, how do you do that? I, I've always been curious about that. I mean, yeah. there, there are people who are just kind of well-known from doing well-known things and then they get invited to speak. Are you doing yeah. any sort of like proactive work to like conference organizers or anything like that? I was, I was kind of in the earlier days and now it's speaking is kind of like a snowball. Like once you've done a few and you have a reputation behind you, it just gets easier and easier. Like it doesn't really slow down. And so it's just about directing the energy where you got wanted to go. So in the early days, I think the number one tip for people trying to get into speaking is you need, 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 need a good video of yourself speaking. It doesn't matter if it's to an audience of two people, zero people, just get something that shows because conference organizers want to know two things. Are you going to embarrass them? Are you going to embarrass yourself? And if you're not, right. you know, if you've got something worth teaching and, and you, you're a capable speaker, having a video is like the, the greatest asset you can have. So I, I still kind of identify conferences that I would like to take part in. And if they have a community slot, so for example, MozCon, you can pitch for a community spot. I'll pitch for those. If I know somebody who has spoken at the conference, I'll sometimes see maybe they have an in with the organizer. Maybe they can put in a good word, as it were. Do you attend or, or, or did you attend before we were all like locked in our houses here? Yeah, I I don't go. It's not something that I like go out of my way to do because it's expensive, right? To like fly across the world everywhere. If there's there's certain ones that I really or communities that I have no real connections in that I want to break into. Like there's certain conferences that were on my list to to go to this year, like Business of Software or Sastra, because there's so many people there who don't know we exist and don't know I I exist, even though that I you know I do a lot of conversion work in software. So. My whole network has largely been because I started in SEO and then went out on my own to this. So it's largely the agency world, not the agency world. I was fortunate to do on the conversion side, a big project for HubSpot. And that opened a whole bunch of doors in terms of making connections there. So it snowballed there too. But yeah, there, I, I have a short list of conferences where it's like, okay, I don't have any hope. I have no in here. I will try to attend those. And I try to be visible at events too. That's the other thing is, not in an obnoxious way, but make yourself known. Go out of your way to connect with people. Like one of the things I did when I was still in SEO or just about, I was just stepping, this is back in 2013, stepping on my own into running my own business is at MozCon. I ran a sticker contest. So I got a whole bunch of stickers with my logo on it. I had a $500 prize, just said, stick this to something, take a picture, tweet it with the conference hashtag. And so, you know, somebody who does that's going to walk away with 500 cash. And it, got enough steam that people recognize like the logo and it created conversation. So finding little ways to not obnoxiously make yourself known at events is, is, has helped for sure. Very cool. So then how about on the back end there? Like, so, so you've done some work, like do, do you have any, anything like built into your process where it's like, okay, we're going to do a follow-up and check in and try to try to drum up some repeat business. Yeah. And that's been a big difference maker for us. So one of the things that we know, I've said it a few times is our success depends on our customer being successful with the assets we give to them. And that's part of how we're continuing to re-engineer and rethink our process is how do we get them more invested in the deployment and seeing the potential and seeing the opportunity. But something as simple as a scheduled follow-up, it's like, hey, it's been a month since we sent this study. How's it performing? Do you need ideas for deploying it? Okay, great. Let's, you know, and and we will do free of charge. Right now, if, if there's a place that I'm I spend time, it's 
you know, if a client comes back and says, oh, I'd love some ideas, I will personally go through their site. I'll surface a bunch of opportunities. I'll send them. It's not like a templated email. Like we, we have resources. We send them just to start giving them ideas. Then I'll come in, you know, and there's still some degree, still some clout as like the founder paying attention to your account. Um, sure. And so I'll come in. I, and I mean, say, I'd imagine it's worth it to spend extra time on you know, it's like, well, does it pay off to spend all this all this time for like new work that hasn't paid yet? But but if they've bought in the past, there's such a high likelihood that they would purchase again versus like a, a cold prospect who who hasn't converted yet. Yeah. And this uh, sometimes, like I mentioned at the very beginning with that referral program or when we were talking before this, right, we during this whole pandemic, one of the things that we've done is spun off our internal referral program. So going back to clients and saying, okay, if you refer someone, you get a credit, they get a credit, that sort of thing. We get new business, new quote unquote business, just by reminding people we exist. Like follow-up has been massive for us just either saying, hey, do you need ideas to deploy your current study? And then we'll try to surprise them by giving them some other asset that makes that even easier. So we try to be proactive and be like, you know, hey, we we created this thing for you. Now you can use that too. Or, hey, we spun this off. Like I'm big on like little extras. I think like that was, that was beaten into me. Like, there's a company called Fan Gamer. All they do is sell like video game related, like clothing, apparel, and like nerdy stuff. And I, years ago, I bought something from them. And with every order, they would send you like this little hand drawn, like some sort of video character. You never knew like who you were going to get. There's always some personalized note from the person who packed it. And I loved that. It was so cool because oh, that's cool. Just as fun as like getting the thing in. So we'll try to do little extras. But yeah, scheduled follow ups for us are huge because you know six months out, it might not be top of mind for them. But they'll probably have had a win. They'll be like, oh yeah, you guys exist. Like we want to do this, and so we try to get them into like a routine of like recognize a win, tell case study buddy, recognize a win, tell case study buddy. We we try to ingrain that behavior in them. So very cool. Well, uh, well, Joel, this is you know you, you really packed a lot of uh, a lot of good information in, into this one. I appreciate you uh, you coming on. You know, case study buddy is just such a great example of, of you know, building a, a really cohesive team and, and systems and process around a really valuable service, you know, really well done. So, so thanks for, uh, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. So that's at uh, casestudybuddy.com. Of course, we'll get that linked up anywhere else people can, uh, can follow along with you. Yeah. I'm probably most active on Twitter, just at Joel Kletke. And if you send me a message on there, I may not respond quickly, but I, I virtually always respond. And then uh, LinkedIn too. So I'm always happy to field questions, share. I mean, hopefully you've heard, like I'm a pretty open book on on most things and just excited to hear what people are building, what you're doing, what questions you have and, and that sort of thing. So always happy to, to chat. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Joel. Yeah, thank you. All right. Did that give you something to think about? If it did, let me know on Twitter. I'm at CastJam. If you want to find show notes on this or any of the other episodes or my weekly newsletter with new content, head over to productizeandscale.com. Now, if you haven't already, a five-star review in iTunes, that would go a long way to helping other folks find the show. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next time.